0: Microphone on? Very good. Well, good morning. They were just greeting first-time guests. So if you're a first-time guest, uh, so am I. (laughs) So you're welcome. So if you're a second time guest, you're an old timer. But uh, no, it's good to be here this morning. I've actually not had a chance to meet your pastor, Elisha. I've talked with him on the phone, but I haven't had a chance to meet him in person. I live way up in Orange County and I teach in Riverside at California Baptist University. It's nice to be in San Diego where it's a little bit cooler. Uh, It's actually really good to be in California Uh, I've been gone most of the month of July. I was back in the south where I come from. You might detect an accent, but I'm trying to overcome that. But uh, I was back in Tennessee seeing my parents in Nashville and my brother. And then I went on down to Atlanta, Georgia, because I have three kids, and one of them is married and lives there. And I just have to show you this because I'm now that guy. Yeah, yeah, my grandson had his first birthday last Sunday, and I got to be there, and uh, it was just a wonderful day. I've got all kinds of pictures, you know, there's his birthday cake, there's his smile. Yeah, I'm now that guy. You know, I'm now the guy in Starbucks ordering the skinny latte, and by the way, have I told you about my grandson, you know, so I don't know how that happened, but it did. So anyway, it's good to be here this morning. I uh, teach up the road at uh, California Baptist University. Uh, We have a mutual friend, Elisha, Pastor Elisha. uh, is good friends with uh, our dean, Chris Morgan, who's also a pastor of church in Highland, And he had recommended that I come down today to speak. And so I understand there's, I guess, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 people from the church down in Costa Rica. And uh, just outstanding, out on mission for God. Well, having your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I want to preach a message that's actually going to be all over the gospel of Mark. I often teach on Mark at uh, CBU. And so um, Mark chapter 1 is where I want to read, uh, beginning in verse 4. Uh, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, and in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the river Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son, the beloved with whom I'm well pleased. May God bless the reading of his word. As humans, we are captivated by stories. As one poet has said, the world is not made up of atoms. The world is made up of stories. We like a good story. They're captivating. We can relate to them. They're complex. We, we like a good movie. We like a good book. But a good, a good story is more than just a recital of incidents and episodes. It has purpose. It has meaning. And the meaning of the story is often at the end of the story. Take for an example from decades ago, I wasn't around quite yet when this movie came out, but I love the movie, 1941, Citizen Kane. If you Google movie list online, almost any top 100 movie list will have Citizen Kane in like the top two or three movies. I mention it in my classes all the time. So uh, if you're not familiar with the movie, I'm not gonna spoil it for you because it's a good one, but the film opens with Charles Foster Kane lying on his deathbed, in a cold, dark mansion called Xanadu, perched high and distant on a hill. And as he dies, he utters one single word. Those of you who have seen the movie, you know what it is rosebud. And he drops a, a snow globe and it crashes to the ground and he dies. And the rest of the movie, the reporters are sent out, they're dispatched to go find out what does the word rosebud mean? And that's the story of the movie. And it basically tells the story of his life. And it's fictional. It's possibly based on the life of William Randolph Hearst up the road. But um, Kane in the movie becomes a media mogul. He runs for governor. Everybody knows him. He's the center of attention. But he dies a lonely life in his castle. And the meaning of the word rosebud is never revealed till the very last scene of the movie. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to watch the movie. It's only a couple hours long. But <laughs> What's interesting in the movie is that the characters in the movie actually never find out what it means. But you, as the watcher of the movie, realize what it is. And you instantly realize, because it flashes back to scenes earlier, and you understand the meaning of the movie. My point with that is, often, when a good story is told, the meaning of a story is at the end of the story. Well, the same is true in our Bible. Our Bible is made up of all kinds of different books, all kinds of different genres, all kinds of different writings. We have law codes that mandated things. We have psalms that they sung. We have laments that they uh, lamented. Uh, they, uh, we have narratives that were told. And it's the narratives, the stories that capture us. If I was to ask you just summarize some of your, famous, your favorite episodes from the Bible, most of you would recount stories from the Bible, the stories of Genesis about the creation, the flood, the patriarchs, the stories of the Exodus, Moses and Aaron, Joshua, David, Samuel, Solomon, the kings of Israel and Judah. We get to the, the New Testament, the life of Jesus, the apostles, the early church, Paul. It's the stories that captivate us and we often see in the stories of the bible that the meaning is revealed at the end of the story take for example the book of jonah in the old testament when we hear the name jonah we're always amazed how in the world did a guy survive 3 days in a fish and lived to, to tell about it but that's actually not the point of the story the point of the story is at the end of the story Jonah goes and he preaches to Nineveh, he preaches repentance, and they change their ways and they're spared from God's judgment. And then Jonah goes and sulks under a a bush that had just quickly sprouted up and then died. And Jonah is so pathetic, God has to say, you're more concerned about the bush than you are about the thousands that have been spared. And that's actually the point of the story, how pathetic Jonah was. The The meaning of the story is revealed in the end of the story. But not just that one, you could take even the short story, Ruth, and yes, it's the story of how she and her mother-in-law uh, survived as widows by the grace and kindness of a kinsman redeemer. But at the end of the story, you find out not only has Boaz married and protected and provided for them, but they actually become the great-grandparents of King David himself, it's revealed at the end of the story. God's grace and goodness in the lineage of David. Or take the story of Esther. Uh, who, in obedience to God, risks her life to go before the king for such a time as this. And at the end of the story, we realize that they're blessed by God for risking their necks in obedience to save God's people. Or if we turn to the narratives of the New Testament, we have five narratives, four gospels in the book of Acts. And what's interesting is I explained to my New Testament classes at CBU, uh, each of the gospels actually starts in a different place, and it ends in a different place, and there's reasons for that, and I don't have time today to talk about that, but because uh, I'm going to focus on Mark, but the meaning of the story is often at the end of the story, and I want to focus on Mark today because that's what I uh, just read here from chapter one, and Mark actually ends oddly; uh, it's it's almost surprising the way it ends. Uh, some of you may be familiar that if you were to, uh, if I was to flip over to Mark chapter 16, the last chapter. Uh, we actually find that it ends in different ways in different manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. There's actually three, depending on how you count them, three or four or five different ways. That Mark ends in the manuscripts. Now, that's actually my area of research, but I don't have time to talk about that today. Um, A lot of my research is on the manuscripts, the Greek and Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. And uh, just suffice it to say, most New Testament scholars think that if we had the original copy of the Gospel of Mark, it probably ended at chapter 16, what we call chapter 16, verse 8, the story of the empty tomb. Now, there's 12 more verses at the end that you'll see in English translations. Usually, they're in double brackets, like in the ESV. And the reason for that is we find those in later manuscripts. And probably the reason for that, the the information there is actually known from the other Gospels. And when the four Gospels were collected together, it looked like Mark was too short. It was too abrupt. It had broken off. And so things were included that were known from the other Gospels to round off the story in comparison to Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark ends with the empty tomb. Now, what's surprising about that is, the risen Jesus actually doesn't appear, uh, as he does in Matthew, giving the great commission on the mountain. Or in Luke, as he instructs the disciples in and around Jerusalem, and then ascends to heaven. Or in John, where we have doubting Thomas, who doesn't believe until he sees with his own eyes, and says, my Lord and my God. Mark just ends with the empty tomb. Jesus is raised He has been vindicated by God. And Mark ends powerfully at that point. The last, what Mark is essentially saying, the last word about Jesus is not that the Romans crucified him, but that God raised him from the dead. And don't spend your time looking around for him here. Look for him to return as the son of man. And so Mark ends powerfully with the vindication of Jesus at the end of the story. And so yeah Mark ends the meaning of the story is in the end of the story there the vindication of Jesus for all he was. See what really what Mark is trying to get across throughout his entire gospel he's really defending who Jesus is and why he dies the way he does. Because for us it might not be shocking that Jesus dies by crucifixion but for those in the first century it was not what they expected of God's anointed one, God's Messiah. And so Mark shows that God vindicated him and showed that he really is the son of God. Now in any well-written story, whether it is a screenwriter from Hollywood, a uh, New York Times bestselling author, uh, the meaning of the story may be at the end of the story, but any good writer will include information leading up to that, especially at the beginning of the story that pertains to the end of the story. That's true of the movie Citizen Kane. I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's scenes, those of you that have seen the movie, uh, know that there's scenes at the beginning that pertain to the end. Well, that's true for the Gospel of Mark as well. And that's why I wanted to read this passage here, the baptism of Jesus. See, here's the catch. As American Christians, uh, growing up in churches as we do, we usually hear individual episodes preached or taught from the Bible, from the, the Gospels and such. And in Sunday school classes and in Bible studies, we usually look at just one chapter or maybe one episode, one parable, one event in the life of Jesus. But originally when the Gospel of Mark was written, it was actually intended to be read as an entire whole from start to finish. We have to remember that in the ancient world, you know, literacy was not a common thing. They didn't have public education so maybe estimates are 5 or 10% of the population could actually read and write, you had to have books read to you. And they actually had dinner parties where the entertainment was not to turn on Netflix and watch a movie together. It was actually to hear a book uh, read aloud to them. We can actually see this in the book of Revelation. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3 of the Revelation of John says, Blessed is the one, singular, who reads this book, and blessed are those, plural, who hear this book. It was read by one aloud to others. The reason I point that out is because when they would read the scriptures aloud, they would read the whole book aloud. Now, it takes about two hours to read the Gospel of Mark, but it's a wonderful thing to do. In fact, I was just at a conference out of... uh, out of the country and, uh, and I, had a, uh, I, had, I got to have lunch and dinner with a gentleman uh, who's a well-respected New Testament scholar and he's actually made a YouTube video professionally done with actors just reading aloud the Gospel of Mark and it takes about two hours to do so and that's the way the Gospel of Mark was originally experienced as a whole. In fact, we can just see that in the words of Mark. Uh, at one point in uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, as Mark is writing out the story of Jesus, uh, he never mentions Jesus by name for 75 verses uh, because he keeps using pronouns. He did this, he did that, he said this, he said that. And if you just take one episode out... It doesn't even have Jesus' name. Now, our English Bibles help us out a little bit. They add in the word Jesus. Now, I mean, you would know who it is anyway, uh, you know, (laughs) that it's Jesus there. But just the fact that Mark keeps using pronouns, he's expecting people are reading straight through. So for 75 verses from chapter 3 into chapter 5, Jesus is not mentioned by name, just pronouns. It happens again in chapters 6 through 8 for 90 verses. And you can just tell that Mark is intending for people to read the story as a whole. Now, the reason I say that is because sometimes when we read an episode like I just did from chapter one, we don't connect it to the end of the story. And the end of the story is uh, an awful, ugly scene. It's where Jesus dies. And it is a brutal scene. It is raw uh, with just injustice, how Jesus is treated. Nobody is there to defend him. Everybody has deserted him. His disciples have all failed him utterly. They have all betrayed, denied, or deserted him. They're nowhere to be found. And the Jewish leaders have condemned him. The Romans have crucified him. Even those crucified next to him are mocking him. The bystanders and passerbys are heaping scorn on him. And Jesus cries out in the Gospel of Mark. There's only one statement from Jesus. Uh, at the cross. Now, in all the Gospels, we have seven, but in Mark, as he tells the story, there's only one statement Jesus makes from the cross, and it's those haunting words in a question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's an awful scene. He looks abandoned, forsaken. In fact, it's interesting, God doesn't sweep in to rescue him like Daniel from the lion's den, or the three from the fiery furnace. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the skies grow dark, and there's silence. But what we notice is that actually God hasn't been silent. God had already spoken at the beginning of the book and rendered his verdict about Jesus, and that's what we see in the scene here. So in the scene with John out there baptizing in the Jordan River, that's an interesting scene in and of itself. Uh, I mean, sometimes we're so familiar with it, we don't stop and realize how odd this is. Uh, Here we have this wild and wooly prophet who's out there in the wilderness eating bugs, and he's dunking people into this river, I mean, just completely under. You know, how did that happen? He's doing this not by the authority of Jerusalem. John's very anti-establishment, and he's out there called by God to preach about the kingdom of God, baptizing people. And then Jesus comes And John is baptizing a baptism of forgiveness for sins, and yet Jesus comes. Now, now there's no hint that Jesus has done anything wrong in need of forgiveness, but it's a little almost shocking. Why is Jesus being baptized when everybody else is confessing their sins? Well, for Jesus, it's not a U turn of repentance, it's actually a springboard launching him into his ministry. In fact, in all the Gospels, we see that with this scene, that's what launches him into his ministry. Prior to this, He's not out there doing anything extraordinary or phenomenal or unusual, but with this scene, he is baptized, the Spirit comes down, God speaks, he goes through the temptation, and then he goes preaching the kingdom of God. And so uh, John's out there baptizing. And then it's also interesting, why is Jesus being baptized by John instead of the other way around? I mean, shouldn't it be... Jesus baptizing John. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, John even starts to protest and say, uh, you know, it should be the other way around. And Jesus says, no, it needs to be this way to fulfill all righteousness. So it's an interesting scene. It's an important scene because it's the way Mark introduces us to the life of Jesus. He comes from Nazareth of Galilee. He comes and is baptized by John. And two unusual things happen. So John had baptized hundreds of people, thousands of people, Uh, Probably. And with Jesus, though, two unusual things happen that didn't happen with others. And that is, the sky was literally, it says in Greek, schizo, the sky was torn open, and the Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus. Not as a dove, but like a dove, some kind of way. We're not sure how, but uh, the Spirit comes down on Jesus. And then God speaks. And if God speaks, you know, listen up, it's going to be important. Some of you remember way back in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, um, there used to be ads on TV for an investment firm called E.F. Hutton. You guys, some of you are shaking your heads. Some of you are going, what the heck is he talking about? It was an investment firm like Morgan Stanley and other ones. But they had these famous ads. And all of you that know the, the name know what I'm going to talk about. And that is they had these ads. And at a dinner party, and people are mingling and talking. Uh, you have somebody that mentions, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says it's going to be investment advice. And the room goes silent. Because in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the saying with the ad was, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And that's what happens here. When God speaks, listen up, it's going to be important. And actually, we're going to see that God speaks twice in the Gospel of Mark. This is the first time here at the baptism of Jesus. And that's what I read there in verse 11. And so, yeah, these two unusual things happen. The Spirit comes down on Jesus, and then God speaks. Now, what's interesting about that is if you look at the opening verse of the Gospel of Mark, which basically functions like a title... Mark starts off by saying the beginning of the good news of Jesus, and he uses two titles, the Christ, the Son of God. And that's actually what we see in this episode. In the narrative here, when Jesus is baptized, we see that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The two unusual things that happen, the Spirit comes down and God speaks. The two titles, he's the Christ, the Son of God. Christ is a word that means anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. Either way, Christos, Greek, Messiah. Hebrew, it means the anointed one. And that's what happens in the baptism scene. The Spirit comes down and anoints him. He is the anointed one. And then, as Mark mentions in the opening verse, the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The second unusual thing that happens at the baptism is God speaks. And what does God say? You are my son. So you see this in the narrative there, very important. So in the book of Mark, what we see is that Jesus eventually faces the worst possible crisis that anyone could ever possibly face. He's abandoned and forsaken by everyone and everything. He is condemned. Nobody defends him. Nobody speaks up for him. He dies in humiliation, utterly alone. Just when you think God might break in to rescue his son, it seems like there's silence. It's the worst possible crisis that anyone could ever face. And it looks like Jesus is anything but the Son of God. It, how, could Jesus, how could God allow his own son to suffer such humiliation? He looks like anything but the Son of God. But if you read carefully through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus really is the Son of God. God has declared it right here in this episode. You are my son. And... Um, And so I would say first here, when we face the crises of life, that God looks at Jesus facing the worst crisis of his life and says, you are my son. Now, this is not the only time in the gospel, Mark, that Jesus is called the son of God. It's really interesting as we walk through the book. um, uh, Halfway through the book, Uh, we find that up at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus instructs his disciples privately about how they must deny themselves, take up the cross, follow him. And they don't understand. Uh, Jesus then predicts he will suffer and die in Jerusalem. Peter doesn't understand and rebukes Jesus, which is kind of funny. Peter trying to correct Jesus, but uh, Jesus then corrects him. And then just a few days later, the transfiguration happens. Up on a mountain, Jesus is transformed into a radiant appearance. Moses and Elijah are there. Uh, Three disciples are there, Peter, James, and John, and God speaks for a second time. And the statement is similar to this that we find here in uh, Mark chapter 1. This time it's third person telling Peter, saying, between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, this one is my son, listen to him. And it's an important statement. Basically, God is telling Peter, shut your pie hole, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. He really will suffer and die like he just said. He's my son. And so God says a second time, God speaks twice in the narrative of Mark and both times God says, you're my son. That's not the only time the term son of God comes up. It comes up later with the trial of Jesus. Actually, even a little bit earlier in in chapter 12, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, he tells a parable of the wicked tenants. And the owner of the vineyard has a beloved son that ends up being rejected. That's Jesus. But at Jesus' trial, where the Jewish leaders are trying to determine what to do with him, uh, with frustration, the high priest, listening to all the false witnesses that can't agree on things, finally asked Jesus point blank, are you the son of the blessed one? It's a roundabout way of saying, are you the Son of God? And Jesus makes honest confession and says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with power um, from the right hand of God. I am. And so that confession is actually the reason the Jewish leaders then condemned Jesus. But that's not the last mention of Jesus as the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark. At the end of the story in chapter 15, the most unlikely person says the most unlikely thing at the most unlikely time. So I already described to you the awful, ugly scene of Jesus' crucifixion. Nobody is there to defend him. Nobody is there to affirm him, speak positively about him. His disciples have all betrayed, denied, deserted him. And the most unlikely person speaks up and actually says the right thing. It's the Roman centurion. And this is a hardened Roman soldier. I mean, he is a professional executioner. And the most unlikely person says the most unlikely thing at the most unlikely time. This is not a moment of strength or glory for Jesus in the sense that he is crucified in humiliation publicly. And it's not a moment where he's walking on water or uh, raising a little girl from the dead. He is publicly crucified. It seems to be a moment of weakness, And this most unlikely person at the most unlikely time says the most unlikely thing. The Roman centurion says, huh, truly this man was God's son. He got it right. In fact, he's the only person in the gospel mark that actually gets it right, that sees Jesus despite his suffering really is the son of God. And I actually think that that single statement is a one-sentence summary of the entire gospel mark. From start to finish, Mark is trying to tell us Jesus really is the Son of God despite the way he dies. Because at the end of the story, he doesn't look like the Son of God. But Mark is saying, no, he really is. God said so at his baptism. God said so at the transfiguration. He demonstrated it with the power of the Spirit and all the things that he was doing. He confessed it to the Jewish leaders and only this pagan Roman executioner was the one that figured it out. What do you know? He really is the Son of God. So, from start to finish, as Jesus faces the worst crisis of his life, God says to him at his baptism, You are my son. Now, why do I point that out? It's because we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know where, but all of us will eventually fe- face crises in life. All of us will face tunnels that seem to have no light, days that are nights that seem to have no dawn. And in the dark night of the soul, God says to us, you're still my child. Now, we're not the son of God in the same way that Jesus is, in a unique and special way, but we're still the children of God. The gospel of John puts it this way. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name, who are born not of the will of the flesh, nor blood, nor of the will of man. They were born of God. We become the children of God. That's what Jesus was talking about when he talked with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader. He's amazed by the things that Jesus is doing, and he can't figure it out. You must be a teacher sent from God because nobody can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. And and Jesus is like, yeah, 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 whatever. Listen, you must be born from above. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what the heck? You know, how how can I be born physically from my mom a second time? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You must be born from above. We are God's creatures through our birth, but we are a new creature through our second birth. It's through birth, God is our creator, but it's through new birth that God becomes our father. And what a wonderful privilege that is. That's why we can read, like in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, where a man had two sons. And the one son asked the unthinkable thing, Dad, can I have my share of the inheritance? can't imagine asking such a thing. It's basically implying, I wish you were gone because I want your stuff. And yet the dad concedes. And the man, the, the young son, goes away to a far country, and, of course, he wastes it all, squanders it away, And when his money is gone, his friends are gone, and he's left with a despicable job as a Jew, slopping pigs. And he realizes, my dad's slaves are better off than I am. And he comes to his senses, and he goes back home, and he confesses his sin. He doesn't want to be restored as a son. He's too embarrassed and ashamed. He just wants to be a slave in his dad's household. But, of course, you know the story. The father runs and hugs him, puts a robe on his neck, a ring on his his fingers, kills the fatted calf, and throws a big party. The son is back. The family is back together again. Of course, that's not the end of the story. It's a two-part parable. There's a, another brother, and the other son is bitter. I've been obedient all my life, and I've worked hard. Dad never threw me a party. And this son of yours, not this brother of mine, but this son of yours has wasted the family money, ruined the family reputation. You throw him a big party, and the dad has to insist to him, son, you've always been with me, but what was lost is now found. What was dead is now alive. The the family is back together. So when we face the crises of life, we can take hope and take courage in that God says to us, you're still my child. You're still my son. You're still my daughter. And that's what we see in the words said to Jesus here, You are my son. Now, that's not, the, um, that's not the only thing that God says at the baptism of Jesus. It says, God says in verse 11, You're my son, but it's not just any son. You're my son, the beloved. Jesus is the beloved son. Now, that word beloved is not an insignificant word. Uh, the first part. Uh, the, the, the statement there, you are my son, is actually a quotation from Psalm 2, where they celebrated a new king in Israel, and God said to the king, you're my son, you're my divine agent on earth. Okay, so the first part of the statement at the baptism, you're my son, is from Psalm 2. The last part of the, of the statement, with whom I'm well pleased, is from Isaiah 42. We have the single word, the beloved, in between, and it's not an insignificant word. It actually comes up three times in the Gospel of Mark. It comes up here at the baptism where God says, you're my son, the beloved. It comes up a second time in the transfiguration. I already described how God speaks a second time in the Gospel of Mark. This one is my son, the beloved, the exact same word comes up. And it comes up a third time in Mark chapter 12 when in Jerusalem Jesus gives the parable of the wicked tenants And describes how this this vineyard owner rents it out to these tenants that take advantage of it. And the man has a son that he sends back when they reject the servants. It's a beloved son. A beloved son. So it's not an accidental or incidental or coincidental term or any other kind of dental. It's an important term. Jesus is the beloved son. Jesus is loved. Now part of the reason I point that out is because the word is not just significant in the Gospel of Mark. It's also significant in the Old Testament. So you're probably familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 22. It's the famous story of the binding of Isaac. Uh, It's a story where, you know, you have to almost know the preceding chapters to know what's going on in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, of course, had been promised that his descendants would become a great nation. They would inherit the promised land. But he has no kids, and they're up in age. And so Abraham had taken matters into his own hands, literally, and uh, through Hagar, uh, bore a son. But that's not the promised child. That's Ishmael. Uh, and the angel of the Lord visits them and says, no, Sarah will have a son. And of course, Abraham's thinking, faith hmm, without works is dead. And uh, so they do have a child. And Isaac is born as the heir of the promise there. And um, and so then we get to Genesis chapter 22 when when Isaac is now a teenager, and God asks the unthinkable of Abraham. 20, chapter, Genesis 22, verse 2 says, uh, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And in Greek, the exact same word is used, agapetos, that was used in Mark. And of course, uh, Abraham and Isaac go off to the mountains of Moriah, and uh, now, by the way, child sacrifice, the, the Hebrew people were never to dabble in such a thing. So this is really unusual. Uh, in the ancient world, many other cultures thought that if you sacrifice your child to a deity, what greater act of devotion can you show than to give what is near and dear to you? And, uh, but the Hebrew people are never to do such a thing. And by the way, it does clarify in the opening verse that God was testing Abraham uh, to see if he would trust fully in him. And, of course, as the story goes on, Abraham and Isaac are there, and God interrupts the episode to say, wait, stop, don't do it. You've shown me, and he says in verse 16, that, uh, you're not willing, that you are willing to sacrifice your son, your only son. And then afterwards, the exact same term is used again, agapitas, the beloved son, three times in Genesis 22. Well, the term is used here in Mark, For Jesus as the beloved son, except this time the son dies. But that's not the end of Jesus. That's not the end of the son. God raises him from the dead. And so, yeah, Jesus uh, facing the worst crisis of his life. God says at the baptism, you are my son. And God says to him at the baptism, you are loved. You're the beloved son. And then finally he says, with whom I am well pleased with whom I'm well pleased. And that's a quote from Isaiah 42. And so, yeah, we come to the end where, uh, of the statement, with whom I'm well pleased. Essentially, God is saying to Jesus, I approve of you, you're not forsaken. You're not forsaken. I choose those words carefully because I already mentioned the end of the story. It looks like Jesus is forsaken. When we read Mark chapter 15... This is Mark's description of the scene. Mark says in Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. In the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's in verse 32. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it uh, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him it, uh, to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a crowd cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It's an awful ugly scene. Nobody is there to defend him. His disciples have all deserted him. The Jewish leaders have condemned him. The Romans have crucified him. The passerbys, the bystanders, they all mock him. Even those next to him, crucified, heap scorn on him. And Jesus utters those haunting words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And actually, in the Gospel of Mark, that is actually Jesus' famous last words. He actually never speaks again uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a haunting cry. It's a question. And superficially, it looks like Jesus has been abandoned. The skies grow dark. God doesn't sweep in to rescue him like Daniel from the lion's den or the three from the fiery furnace. It looks like he has been abandoned and forsaken even by God himself. But the reason I had you read the text with me there is notice carefully Jesus really isn't being abandoned. Something is being abandoned, But it's not Jesus, it's actually the temple. Mark said that as Jesus is dying, the temple veil tears from top to bottom. Huge, ornate, elegant, thick curtain that Josephus describes hanging in the temple. It tears from top to bottom, which means it's a God thing that is happening there. Essentially, what Mark is describing is that God has left the building. Some of you remember back in the 70s and 80s when Elvis would give a concert and thronging crowds would be there. Uh, When he would finish the concert, exit backstage, an announcement would be made, Elvis has left the building. And that's what's going on here. God has left the building. He has deserted the building. So it looks like Jesus is being forsaken, but he's not. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus looks abandoned and forsaken. He's not. It's the temple that is being forsaken. And 40 years later, the Romans come and just burn down the building and destroy it. And it's almost like Mark is saying, hmm, big deal. He had already left the place. And so we see here that, um, that Jesus is approved. God approves of Jesus. He looks cursed and forsaken and abandoned, but he isn't. And in the dark night of the soul, what God had said to Jesus at the baptism is, You're my son. You are loved, and I approve of you. You know, we all crave approval from our earliest days. As children, we we crave our parents to pat us on the back, give us a good word, well done, I liked what you did there. In school, we crave for our teachers to approve what we've done on tests and papers. In the workplace, we want our bosses to notice the things that we've done. On social media, how many times do we post a picture of our grandson, (laughs) which generates lots of likes, by the way? Uh, But we 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 check back regularly because we want the approval. As humans, we crave approval, and the most important approval that we can ever crave is God's approval. And Mark is saying we already have that by trusting in His Son. So as Jesus faced the worst crisis of His life, God had said way back at the beginning, "You're My Son. You're the Beloved." With whom I'm pleased. And before we ever face the worst crises of our lives, before they ever come our way, when we've put our faith in God's grace and trust Him with our lives, God says to us, You're my child, you are loved, and you're approved and not forsaken. And that's the good news of the gospel. As Tim Keller so aptly said one time, he wrote and said, We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believed, but we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. And that's the good news that we see here in the gospel, Mark. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you that somehow, some way, in your grace and goodness, when we didn't deserve it at all, you sent your son into this world to face the, the worst that this world ever uh, could offer. And we read the story of Jesus. We're amazed at his diligence, his obedience, his submission as he faced these crises as your son. We're grateful that he died on our behalf. And we know it's through his goodness and your grace that you transform lives. Lord, we know that we are not worthy of your grace or goodness. It's surely through your love and mercy that you reached out to us and took the initiative when we certainly weren't worthy. And so, Lord, we we cling to that. We, uh, We cherish that. And so today, as we've gathered for worship, if there's someone who is facing difficult circumstances, crisis and turmoil that seems hopeless, we pray today that they would put their trust in you, that they would hope in you, that you would show them that through faith, Through your grace, we are the children of God. Through your love, we realize we are loved. And through your grace and goodness, we realize that we are approved. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.